everybody, this is Viktor Kovalenko from the United States. I am a former journalist and a veteran officer from Ukraine. And this is my podcast about all things Ukraine, and in particular about the ongoing Russian war against this young European country. My guest today is Adrian Bonnenberger. He is a writer and a U.S. Army veteran who served two deployments to Afghanistan as an infantry officer. He is the author of the books Afghan Post and The Disappointed Soldier. His essays and reporting have appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post and The Foreign Policy magazine. Besides that, Adrian Bonnenberger spent a long time in Ukraine after the first Russian invasion, which happened eight years ago. Welcome to my podcast, Adrian. First of all, thanks for inviting me and, and chatting with me. I think you and I have uh, been mutual followers on social media on and off since probably around 2015 or 2016. And uh, I've always appreciated uh, seeing your thoughts. Thanks for inviting me on to chat. It's, uh, it's a pleasure. Let's begin our talk with the historic comparisons. Does this Russian war against Ukraine remind you of the Soviet war in Afghanistan in the 70s, 80s? Can we talk about the similarities and differences between those two wars? There really aren't any good modern corollaries for it. There, there are good uh, older corollaries or, or analogies. There's such a thing as a good analogy and a bad analogy. So you could say the war between Russia and Ukraine is like the war between Rome and Carthage. And it is in the sense that it's a war. It's unlike it in many other ways. Um, maybe it's somewhat like the Second Punic War in the sense that Hannibal invaded Italy and went around trying to uh, get, thinking that it was going to go into a friendly place and that many of the Italian city-states would join with Hannibal. And nobody joined with Hannibal. And maybe this is somewhat similar to what Putin uh, and Russia thought was going to happen in Ukraine, that many Ukrainians would join them, but actually very few Ukrainians have joined them. Um, and, and I think the defensive campaign uh, that was waged against Hannibal successfully by the Romans uh, does provide something of a map strategically for what Ukraine can do. But that's still like a very, very imperfect analogy to look at the Roman army of 2000 years ago or the Carthaginian army and say that there are analogies between the Russian army and the Ukrainian army of today. It's really tough. So I feel like people people have these sort of insight, like try to make insights or try to get value out of, out of comparisons. And there is some value to be gotten from any comparison, but it's also really easy to go wrong. It's easy for people to extrapolate too much from uh, from wars. I think probably the place that's most useful if we're looking at the Russian occupation, uh, invasion of and occupation of Afghanistan, the, the Soviet invasion and occupation, probably the most useful thing to take out of that is how corrupt the Soviet experience there was, how many Russian soldiers were Soviet soldiers, not just Russian, many Ukrainians uh, were, were, were in the U.S., were in the Red Army at that time. It's, they weren't resourced very well. The USSR wasn't sending them a lot of great equipment. Their uh, very poor soldiers were selling equipment to the, uh, to the Afghan insurgents. And so from that perspective, probably like if we're looking at the Russian military of today, that's probably somewhat similar to what was happening in Afghanistan uh, between 1980 and 1989. Very low morale soldiers, very badly disciplined, um, officers cheating and stealing where they could, people just kind of trying to get by during their deployment. 
and uh, and taking as few risks as possible. So that's probably a useful analogy to make there, but I don't think there's much else of value to be seen. Afghanistan is an incredibly different country from Ukraine. I mean, like almost totally different, <laughs> um, both in terms of terrain and in terms of the, the, the people and the populace and the culture. Uh, so there's very little of value to be made by that comparison. This is remarkable that the Ukrainian army didn't fall apart this year in front of the massive Russian army in comparison to the Afghan army, which quickly collapsed before the Taliban. Yeah, that's I mean, that's probably that seems to have been something that was in the back of the the, the planners minds. But God, they must have been so stupid to think. I mean, if if their premise is Ukrainians are like Russians, we know the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians are going to join us very quickly. I mean, it must have just been totally imaginary for them. Um, on top of which, you know, I, and I want to be to give the Afghans credit. You know, the Afghans fought a very difficult war. I mean, the soldiers who were on the front lines fought a very difficult, long, many years war against the Taliban. Um, you know, the soldiers weren't always very well equipped. Special operations was well equipped by the United States. But soldiers in general might not be very well equipped. There was a lot of corruption in the Afghan military. And then we were also building the Afghan military kind of from scratch. The Ukrainians built their own military. It's very difficult to look at the Afghan military of the last 20 years and make any useful comparisons with the Ukrainian military as it has developed since 2014, which is mostly organically. Adrian, you spent time in Ukraine after the first Russian invasion, and you traveled to the eastern areas of that country where the Ukraine army held the ground at that time. What are your thoughts about your time in Ukraine and the first Russian invasion? I did not get to Ukraine until May of 2015. So all of my visits to the front were just for, to the uh, to trenches and to positions in like Avdivka and Marenka. I did not see the war of May 2014 to February of 2015. I didn't see that. I talked to a lot of soldiers who had been there, uh, volunteers, veterans of the front. My assessment of the history of that piece of the war is that Ukraine's military largely existed on paper in the beginning of 2014. You know, they had no reason to field a massive military because they weren't going to go to war with Russia. You know, uh, They had their territorial sovereignty guaranteed by Russia and America and UK. And Ukraine is a, you know, it's a pretty peaceful country, naturally. People aren't sort of always saying we should invade our neighbors. That's a, <laughs> there are other countries that do this and Ukraine is not one of them. So they, you know, as far as I understood it, the military started building up in 2014, really after Crimea. It's hard to build a military. It's very difficult to build one from nothing or from little. At the same time that the military was rebuilding, once this invasion, the soft hybrid war is what people were calling it. Hybrid war invasion happened in like May of, of 2014. Then President Poroshenko and, and the Ukrainian government, I think very wisely, but dangerously, you know, really out of necessity said, okay, we're not going to be able to do this quickly enough. We're not going to be able to rebuild the military fast enough to, to hold on to things. So they allowed, you know, militias to get standed up. So militias, volunteer units. And so I think, you know, somewhere between it's 
tough to get the actual numbers. I've heard, you know, the number of about 50, 50 battalions, volunteer battalions of different sizes stood up. Um, so you get between 20,000 and 40,000, um, you know, volunteers who went to the East, you know, some of them had great training, great equipment. Others had no training and little or no equipment. And they fought the Russian led separatists to a standstill. The military caught up with that you know, June, July, and started pushing forward to the border, at which point there was an actual Russian military invasion. I mean, they had, there were Russian units with Russian infantry, Russian tanks, Russian artillery in Ukraine fighting uh, in 2014. And the West's position on that was it needs to stop. It needs to end. I think Russia was probably about as badly prepared to fight a war as Ukraine was in 2014. And it's difficult to say what would have happened had that war been permitted to just kind of unfold, whether it would have been useful for Ukraine or not useful. Certainly, there was no appetite in the West to support Ukraine at that time. The Obama administration was focused on ISIS in Iraq and Syria to a certain extent. And, uh, you know, the rest of Europe was on vacation and they had there was no interest in war. There was no interest in supporting Ukraine in any way, shape or form. And, and of course, things have changed since then. Ukraine used its eight years well, not as well as it could have. More preparations could have been made from 2015, from the ceasefire in Minsk to today, but it used it far better than Russia did. And that's why one of the reasons that Russia, that Ukraine has done as well as it has against the deeply unprepared Russian military. You are listening to the podcast about the Russian war against Ukraine. My name is Viktor Kovalenko, and my guest today is Adrian Bonnenberger. He is a U.S. Army veteran who served two deployments to Afghanistan and the writer of two books, Afghan Post and The Disappointed Soldier. Currently, Ukraine is under the Russian assault again. This is the second invasion. And in 2022, it is fully open. Russians don't deny it anymore. This is a full-scale offensive on Ukraine with the use of aviation and the Navy, battle tanks, cruise missiles, thermobaric and cluster munitions, and other conventional weaponry. Not every military and society can sustain such a massive and high-intensity attack. What do you think? Should Ukraine negotiate the ceasefire and peace with Russia as soon as possible? Or should it keep repelling the aggressor till the end? What Ukraine should do in this situation is very difficult. Personally, and I think most people really just want peace and are happy to take peace for any reason. You know, nobody wants war. Only a psychopath wants war. So the real question becomes, you know, with Minsk or with the frozen conflict, you know, especially with Minsk, you know, well, we're going to do Minsk three now. And then next year, you know, Russia will bite off Kharkiv and then we'll do Minsk four. And then Russia will bite off uh, Zaporizhia and Dnipro. And then we'll do Minsk five. And uh, how many Minsks are we going to do until Russia gets to Poland? And then we're going to have to come up with some new place to sign agreements. And I think the real problem here is that it's not that what will Ukraine do? What can Ukraine do? Ukraine is fighting for its existence as a country. Ukrainians are fighting for their lives as Ukrainians. Where Russians go, they're going to destroy Ukraine. They're going to destroy cities and infrastructure. They're going to kill and rape people, as they have. They're going to rob goods. They're going to destroy whatever they can 
and rename it Russia and bring Russian citizens in to repopulate it. They're going to do genocide and ethnic cleansing, and that's what they're already doing, and they're just going to do more of it. And so if this was Russia was the type of country that you could negotiate with, well, they probably wouldn't have invaded in the first place. Maybe it's a Putin thing. You know, I think some people hope that, that it's like, well, this is just a Putin thing. If that's the case, then, you know, somebody needs to do regime change in Russia so we can actually sign. So Ukraine or the West or anybody can sign an agreement with a Russian government that's, that's trustworthy. The problem, as I see it, is not that people don't want peace. Of course, people want peace. I want peace. You know, everybody wants to go back home and, and, and stop getting killed. The problem, again, uh, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Uh, fool me twice, shame on me. We just did this with Russia. You know, that was Minsk too. And they broke the agreement again. And I think Putin has made it very clear that what he wants is no Ukrainian nation, no Ukrainian people, no Ukrainian culture, no Ukrainian language. Yeah, so for those people who care about being Ukrainian, there cannot be a negotiated peace. There has to be a peace that is imposed by strength. That is the sad, and I would say, inexorable logic of the position that Ukraine is in. Now, having said that, if Ukraine, if if President Zelensky says we have to negotiate for peace, and he presents this referendum to the Ukrainian people, and the Ukrainian people all sign off on it, I'm not going to tell them to keep fighting. I'm 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 not telling a single Ukrainian person to continue to fight. Um, I, I'm not on the front line. You know, I mean, I think it's incredibly brave of the people who are, but you know, that like the people in Azov Steel who who held out for for months, you know, weeks and then months with almost nothing. Who could tell them to fight for another day? They fought far longer than anybody thought they would. So, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say Ukraine ought to do this or ought to do that. I want peace for Ukraine. I want peace for the Ukrainian people. And I don't see any way forward and through to that peace except through victory over Russia. I don't say that with pleasure. I, I don't want a year of war or five years of war or 10 years of war. I want peace tomorrow. I just don't see that there's any way to negotiate that with Russia without essentially taking a knife and putting it back in your stomach, you know, in a week or a month or a year, whenever, you know, Russia decides to attack again, as they will. My next question, Adrian, is about popular perceptions of Ukraine in the West. You are active in social media discussing this issue, and you can see that quite many Americans get Ukraine wrong. As I understand, it is hard for many here in America to differentiate the Ukrainian identity from the Russian one and realize that Ukraine is not Russia anymore. Why does this happen? People get Ukraine wrong for a number of reasons. And I think the number one reason people get Ukraine wrong is not because they want to, but because there is so much Russian propaganda about Ukraine that goes back decades, maybe centuries, if you want to go back to like the 19th century. And so the first thing that people encounter about Ukraine is Russia. I have a lot of friends who, it wasn't until I went to Ukraine for the first time in 2015 and came back, parents of my friends or friends would tell me, oh, I'm part Russian, you know, my grandparents left Kiev or, you know, my great grandparents left Odessa in 1905 or something like this. And then you'd be like, oh, okay, so you're not Russian. You're like, you're something else. You're different from that. Uh, maybe you're Ukrainian. Uh, maybe you're Jewish. 
Maybe there's some other sort of identity that you you glom onto, but it's definitely not 100%. I'm from Russia. I'm from this area that used to be a part of Imperial Russia. Yeah, but but there were a lot of people there who didn't necessarily agree with that 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 their identity was was essentially Russian. And so people, when you get tangled up in in that idea of Russia or Ukraine, and if your first touch with Ukraine is Russian, is a Chekhov story in Crimea, is a Pushkin poem, you know, very, very difficult to overcome that massive weight of literature and history to understand that that whole time, people who were writing and talking about that were an elite, part of an aristocracy that essentially owed its loyalty and fealty to Moscow, either directly or indirectly. So it's really tough to sort of talk by that. People are conditioned to not view Ukraine as a place where people have any agency as Ukrainians. It's a very elitist stance. That's the biggest problem. The second biggest problem is that, you know, it's not seen as their problem. It's not seen as specifically an American problem by people on the far right and people on the far left. I've found that the people who are most interested in Ukraine as a country and the struggle of Ukrainians are actually in the center, center left, center, center right, people who care a lot about democracy. People on the far left and the far right do not care about democracy. They want something else. They want to impose a different political system on the United States of America or in Europe. And so people in the center, though, they like our system. They understand why it works, how it works, and they see a lot of themselves and American history, the best part of American history, in what Ukraine is doing right now. Like the militia going into the territorial defense forces and going into the military, the militias of 2014, 2015, that's basically the Continental Army in the 18th century. That's like Americans getting together to fight against the British. Like that's really what it is. That's a good analogy, I think. But it's very difficult, you know, to get through a lot of the propaganda and noise to to help people understand that. And I think also the last thing I'd say about this is that the loudest people on social media are mostly extremists. You know, not everybody who's loud on social media is an extremist, but social media, especially on Twitter, you know, Twitter's algorithm encourages argument and disagreement and type of engagement, that very hostile form of engagement. And so the people who are loudest are people who probably don't like Ukraine for one reason or another, just sort of naturally. Or they dislike those things about Ukraine that is distinctly American in terms of America's interests, such as democracy, such as reduced corruption, such as decentralization, such as people having a sovereignty that reports to the people rather than some elite somewhere else. My next question is about the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. Recently, he compared himself to Peter the Great, who collected the Russian lands. On the other hand, the world leaders like US President Joe Biden think that he is simply a butcher. What do you think about him? Who is Mr. Putin? Right now, Vladimir Putin is somebody who is evolving into a person very much like Adolf Hitler. That is the best analogy for Vladimir Putin. Uh, in 2014, if you'd asked me, I would have said Vladimir Putin is a gangster. He's an opportunist. He's a pretty smart guy, but he's not as smart as people say. He sees opportunities and he takes them and he's been pretty good at doing that. And since that time, since the choices that he's made, beginning with the uh, invasion and annexation of Crimea, and certainly accelerating with his first attempt at Novorossiya, I think 
it's very, very difficult to look at what he's doing, the revanchism, the appeals to a romantic vision of the Rus people and of Russia, and not see in him and his language a Russian Adolf Hitler. That's who I think he's like. Although I would say he lacks the charisma of a Hitler, and he lacks the conspicuous anger of a Hitler. But he's a Russian Hitler. I mean, a German Hitler looks one way, an American Hitler would look very different, and of course a Russian Hitler looks Russian. Uh, but I think that's what Putin looks most like. And I don't think he will unfortunately get the the same deserving end that Hitler did, you know, a shot in the head in the the bunker, suicide, uh, followed by the burning of his body. But I do think that Putin will, you know, eventually he'll die, like every person has to die. And I think he will be remembered very badly in history. And I think he's really going to damage Russia in the long run. Even even if they take more of Ukraine, he's really, really going to damage Russia. He's a horror for the Russian people, and he's a horror for Europe. At the end of the episodes, I ask my guests about how the Russian war in Ukraine will end and what the victory for Ukraine may look like. Putin sees war with Ukraine as a proxy war with Europe and European ideas. And from this perspective, Putin has already lost the war because the ideas that animate Ukraine and Ukrainians have been sufficient for them to stand up to an army and a country many times greater and larger than Ukraine. And so the ideas that Putin is fighting are far more powerful than the ideas that he's giving to the Russian people and far longer lasting. So I think from this perspective, Ukraine has already won. It is one, the idea of Ukraine as a country, as Ukraine as a sovereign people, uh, Ukraine as a language and a culture and history. Um, so I think Ukraine has actually already won on the most important level, like the, the most symbolic level. Ukraine will continue to exist. Even if Russia were to take all of Ukraine the way that the Egyptians took all of Israel, even if the Ukrainians were to become enslaved by Russia and Russians, as Putin wants, Ukraine would still exist as the Jewish people continue to exist after a defeat. That's something that nobody can take away from Ukraine and Ukrainians anymore. Here, I would like to wrap up this episode of my podcast about Ukraine that explains how Ukrainians fight to save their sovereign state from Russia. My name is Viktor Kovalenko. I am a former Ukrainian journalist and Ukraine army veteran. My guest today was Adrian Bonnenberger, a writer and U.S. army veteran who served in Afghanistan. Please support my podcast by donating to my PayPal. Also, follow me on Twitter for updates and discussions. My Twitter handle is Mr. Kovalenko, Mr. Kovalenko, one word. I say goodbye till the next episode. So long.